It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I'm so glad that you made it to class this morning. You like how I say my name? I like my name. L. Joy Williams. I love it. Anyway, <laughs> spring is in the air. At least it feels like it. It feels like it. Um, spring is in the air, but so is COVID. So while I know that some of us are getting vaccinated and the warm weather is enticing, you want to go outside, be on somebody's rooftop, sipping a little something, I'm going to remind you, and mainly this reminder is for me, actually, that I should not be excited about getting on somebody's rooftop and sipping something with some people, not to get too comfortable. It's a virus out there, folks. <laughs> and we can't always predict what's going to happen. And everybody isn't practicing safe behavior. So we have to be vigilant. I tweeted about this actually earlier in the week that I'm actually going back to my office because I can't sustain the work-life balance situation at my house anymore. And I need some separation, <laughs> but I'm developing a whole safety plan, even though I had the opportunity to take the vaccine I want to create some separation and I also want to create a safety plan to keep myself safe. So following all of the guidelines and wearing a mask just because I have the vaccine doesn't mean I need to be all out here willy nilly. I need to protect other people. I need to protect myself because you could still get COVID even if you got a vaccine. But thankfully, getting the vaccine hopefully means you don't die <laughs> and it just becomes um, something that you're about, you can get over. So I, I just want to make sure I have a plan in place. But I can't be working until 10 and 11 o'clock at night and then dragging myself to bed and then getting up and doing all the same thing again. So I'm looking forward to going back. I'm looking forward to a bit of a commute again. I'm not yet ready to get on the subway. So I'll be driving just for a week just to see if I can, you know, make myself prepared to get on the subway situation. But I'm looking forward to packing a lunch and, you know, all the things of being in an office building, um, being downtown, if you will. And most importantly, I'm hopeful that it will allow me to be more productive and balanced. So all of that is out of the way. What are we talking about today? Well, it's Sunday. And some of you will be logging into church service a bit later. But before you do, boy, do I have a Sunday school lesson for you. Coming to the front of the class this morning is Anthea Butler, who is an associate professor of religion and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania. But she's the author of the new book, which is what we're bringing her on to talk about this morning, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America, which drops on March 22nd, which you can already pre-order. You can already pre-order it and have it ready to drop on your doorstep or at your office, wherever you're going to be. And the book tells the history of the evangelical movement and the racist and racial elements that are at the heart of its beliefs, practices, and social and political 
activism. And I know some of you might identify as evangelical and you may be reaching for the knob (laughs) to turn this off or to turn off the podcast and say, wait, nope, I'm not ready for this or I don't want to listen to this. But please wait. Please, please, please. I want you to listen and engage in the conversation we're about to have because no one is about to attack your personal relationship with God. We're not about to do that. I would never allow this um, on the show. But I do want us to have a conversation about the institutions we choose to practice our faith, practice our culture, practice through The last time we had Professor Anthea Butler on the show was back on episode 19, which was titled The Political Church. There we talked with Professor Butler, along with Professor Naisha Jr. and Pastor Leslie Don Callahan about the phrase separation of church and state and also the intersection of religion and politics. Here's a clip of Professor Anthea Butler from that conversation. Professor Butler, I'll start with you. Do you believe there is a separation or what is the separation that's supposed to exist? I don't believe there's a separation at all. And the reason why I say that is not because I don't believe there should be a separation. I actually believe that there should be a separation. The problem is, is the difference between what um, Thomas Jefferson meant when he wrote the letter to Danbury Baptist versus the way that everybody does this now. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We've always had, you know, governmental leaders of different types have religious people around them for certain kinds of reasons, especially in the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, what I think is the problem right now is that we have a certain type of religion that's being privileged over other religions, and that is a form of white evangelical Christianity. Notice I say white in front of that, because that is something that is not necessarily what I would think about as the black church or any other kind of religion. It has particular kinds of um, things behind it, and it also has a sense in which there's white supremacy behind it. And so I think right now, we don't have separation of church and state. If it operated the way that it was supposed to operate, let, let me give you an example. The Constitution says there should be no religious test for you know leadership or presidency. We wouldn't have all these things that happen in Iowa all the time where somebody sits down in front of religious leaders or they talk to focus on the family or somebody to try to give their bona fides about what they believe about abortion or anything else. Where religion, and I'll put it to this way to close, where religion I think is very interesting as imposing on the state when you think about somebody like Martin Luther King, who was pressing up against you know unjust structures. You need to be outside of that structure so that you can critique that structure. And if you are a part of that structure, like what's happening now with white evangelicals and the government, then you end up being corrupted. And so whatever your religious tradition might be, if you align yourself with the government, and if the government is bad, then by, you know, by um, default, your religion gets bad, too. And this is a problem for them right now. We'll be back with more of Sunday Civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And this morning, we are having a conversation about white evangelical racism. 
I know it's Sunday, it's church. Maybe you thought we were going to talk about something light, but no, no, we're going straight into the deep stuff, into the deep stuff. So we are joined at this time by a wonderful, wonderful person who has not been on the show for some time. Welcome back to the show, Professor Anthea Butler. Hey, sis. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. Professor Anthea Butler is an associate professor of religion and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And she is the author of the book that we are talking about this morning, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America, which drops March 22nd. So you can go pre-order that right now. And, you know, she's my play cousin. That's right. That's right. We play cousins. Because our lives end up being similar. Although I did not get, I have not gotten the blessing that you've gotten yet, but we we still working on it. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) We working on it. We working on it. So I want to read this opening piece of the introduction of the book, that white evangelical racism tells a concise history of the evangelical movement, the racist and racial elements that imbue its beliefs, practices, and social and political activism, you come straight out. Yeah, and yeah. It's just like, let me tell you what this is, just in, t- in case you were confused. Yes, I'm not playing. I did not come to, you know, be nice. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And um, I'm coming like Jesus, basically, to say, y'all racist. And you've written this history as though you haven't been racist. And this time for a reckoning to think about the kinds of things that evangelicals have been doing and what they have believed in and why they do what they do. And I think that it's time that people understand that. Mm. So I want to start from the jump, from the beginning, because we want to use, as we're using terms and terminology, we want to define what we mean, what we're talking about so that people are confused. And you do that in the book. So let's begin with the definition of what you mean when you're talking about evangelical. What I mean when I'm talking about evangelicals is basically sort of a kind of a political term in a way, Um, but also a religious term. I'm thinking about people who have, you know, basic biblical beliefs and then errancy and then fallibility of scripture. But I'm also thinking about white people who consider themselves to be Christians who are also, you know, basically have some beliefs and they also a lot of the times with Republican Party. I'm also thinking about here Pentecostals and Charismatics because I think we tend to try to figure out how they don't or do fit in evangelicalism. And I'm kind of putting everybody together in this lump because that's what happens with the media and that's what happens with politics. So for the purposes of this book, we're talking about, you know, people like the Southern Baptists. We're also talking about people like the Assemblies of God, we're talking about, you know, people like Paula White, you know, and as I used to call them, the D list of all of the Trump people who he had around him, including, you know, like Darren Walker and uh, Darren, um, you know, whatever his name was, I can't remember, in Detroit. But all of those kinds of people who, you know, basically support conservative values and have supported Donald Trump. Mm. I, I thought it was really important because particularly, as you know, in the faith ecosphere, right, there. Mm. People identify in terms of who they are, whether by denomination, you know, by their church network and those listening, because, you know, quite often you get the question, tell somebody that you're Christian or, you know, what their, your background is. And you're like, oh, Baptist or Pentecostal or, Mm -hmm. you know, like people like those kind of 
those terms mean things to different people. You do. And it's it's always interesting to me because <laughs> doing a foster care application, you know, every year they te- they ask like, you know, what religion you are. And then some instances they go further and they're like, oh, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? All these things. And it always amused me because growing up, I was just like, I did not know what Protestant movements would like or whatever. When someone described my church, I was like, oh, we're Baptocostal. Uh A little bit of Baptist, a little bit of (laughs) like a little bit of Pentecostal, right? And I knew the distinctness of people who were. Catholic, which didn't always equate with our Christianity, you know, yeah. like me yeah, growing exactly. up. Yeah. <laughs> and so the term evangelical, I didn't, that didn't come to my lexicon until college, mm-hmm. until meeting white folks from other places, yeah. right? Who had grown up in mm-hmm. that kind of movement. I did I knew who Billy Graham was. Yeah. I knew the TBN, like I knew all of those kinds of, I knew who there was, but it wasn't defined to me as an evangelical movement and that I was or was not a part of that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and you know, there's good reasons for that too, the historical reasons, because they kind of didn't want you to be involved in that. When mm. the National Association of Evangelicals got started in the 1940s, it was like all white denominations. One black denominations, they you know, black denominations could have joined because of the way in which they described their belief system, but they didn't want that. It was like for white people only. And so this term evangelical, where if you just want to think about it in the purest sense of the term, it's about spreading the gospel. You know, it's that, you know, go out into the world and mark, you know, preach to the gospel, everybody, give them the gospel, evangelion, right, in in Greek. But this particular thing has been politicized and politicized in different kinds of ways. And I think for evangelicals today, they're at this crisis moment where they're trying to figure out, can we bring in all the blacks and Latinos and Asians and hope that we can, you know, not make ourselves look racist anymore? And I'm like, "Eh, eh, eh, not so fast. You've done this history and that's what this book is about. And so I can see why you think that, but I mean, there's been a project to not really say that Black people were evangelical until it became expedient to do so. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Until the 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 tide turned publicly yeah. um, that, that 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 you were losing something mm-hmm. or there's something wrong with you for not having it. Then it's like it's like a PR move, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. it's like doing a it's mm-hmm. like doing a campaign ad during Black History Month. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And and there's always been Black evangelicals because I talk about this in the book. But it's like you know, especially for right now, it's like it's about how can we clean this up so we don't look like we're crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, it's too late. You know, you can't clean this up. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I, I want to go to another term because it's also in the title of morality. And mm-hmm. so what's the word morality in the title and what does it have to do with racism? Well, part of what I, you know, I'm talking about in the book is the ways in which evangelicals use morality as a shield. In other words, all of these things we talk about, whether that's, um, you know, that they're against homosexuality, they're against same-sex marriage, they're against, you know, abortion, all of these things are used in ways to couch the racism. And, and one of the stories I tell in the book is about how in the 19th century, this construction of the family, as opposed to what has happened in slavery and thinking about black people, you know, not having, you know, formed families because guess what? Slave masters sold us apart. 
makes it really important to understand that morality is kind of a shield for evangelicals. So in other words, they could say, well, we're Bible-believing Christians and we believe in pro-life. And so that makes it seem like, oh, they must be okay people. But the reality is, is that they're using these things to couch the kinds of policies and practices that they believe in that subjugate other races to their whiteness. And I think that's something really important for people to understand. We just had, I'm going to forget this, and you probably are a closer follower of politics in some ways than I am. But there was a story this past week about, you know, a politician who got up on the floor and basically said, like, you know, families need to stick together and blah, 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 and how Black families were falling apart. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is like the whole, you know, argument that evangelicals have been using. And in a way, it was reminiscent of this 19th century stuff. And so what I wanted to do is to show people how this works in practicality, how people are trying to use this as a, as a way to which to make wedge politics so that they can get their politics and the things that they want from the Republican Party done, as opposed to being fair and having policies that cover all people in America, not just for themselves. Mm. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> thinking about that, you know, I think about even as a person of faith, I, I, I don't, you know, I have this saying that, you know, I've uh, talked to you about before that my faith governs myself, not what mm -hmm. I impose upon other people. Yeah. And that was what I was brought up with. And so that while, yes, even though you spread the message of, you know, Jesus and the, you are not the morality police. Yeah. Right. You yeah. are you can't dictate to people who have not made a decision, one, who have not made a decision to follow your, you know, the same tennis. And two, even if they are following, you are not the arbiter and the judge <laughs> like of what right. what happens and what does it. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I always found in conflict when, you know, because I, I I did I was a child in the age of where people still got sat down for doing stuff. But, you know, that's yeah. another kind of like, that's oh, another that's kind of like, that's like when we're both going to date ourselves when they used to sit down for sleeping with somebody getting pregnant. You know, usually it was the women and not the men. But, you know, exactly. I digress. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I, I, you know, I do remember, you know, the remnants of that still yeah. existing. And I feel I sometimes feel myself being old, like when I see the younger people in my church now, like when they're doing certain things and I'm like, what are you wearing during praise and worship? Mm -hmm. What is mm -hmm. happening? And then I'm like, what yeah. am I doing? <laughs> like I'm doing, ah. I'm doing the same You be trying thing. to pull that modesty cloth out on them, huh? <laughs> I was like, oh, them, them fishnets. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> like, you know, but uh, again, you know, different areas sort of how you were raised, but that kind of defining morality piece, I found very interesting in reading and going through from you know, other movements in the country, whether it's a temperance movement, whether it is defining, really, I just read a couple of essays on this because it was made mention in a documentary somewhere about how churches and others push for this movement of taking care of women and children because men were, you know, off drinking. And so, the, and so like there was this movement of like, well, we need to pay to take care of like, it, it was part of a religious movement and institution mm -hmm. it's tied to also part of the getting rid of, you know, banning alcohol. Right. So I, it was like a little breadcrumb, like in Ken Burns documentary about yes. the, the movement. And I was like, huh, <laughs> you know, like it went off into another direction. But all of those things were around morality. Absolutely. And, and it was these churches 
and these pastors really who were standing on soapboxes, you know, on dirt roads and corners or towns, you know, that sort of drummed up these political movements. Mm -hmm. And so this connection of what would be religious entities, churches and pastors from a religious standpoint that then became political movements. Can you talk a bit more about that before we get to the 70s and others and sort of how they kind of push in? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that the 19th century is my lane, so I can talk about that a lot. I mean, what you saw with the temperance movement is basically sort of like, how do you, you know, how do we get drink out of the way and everything else? And this is a way, black, both black and white women were involved in temperance movement. But, you know, here's the thing is that when white women talked about the temperance movement, it was also to talk about how, you know, black people were more susceptible to the drink, all of the stuff they had broken families, everything else. And you see this kind of language going right into the 20th century. So even when you get to prohibition, right? It's like, who gets who gets sullied? Who gets, who gets tainted with the brush? Well, of course it's black people in the juke joints, all of this other stuff. Now, all of it gets tainted by, you know, religious folks, but once, you know, prohibition is repealed, then you start to get these other kinds of moral, you know, suasion issues. So if we want to talk about a moral suasion issue, obviously civil rights is one, right? But what happens? Civil rights gets, you know, put under the brand of communism because guess what? Communists are bad. They want people to live together, but they also want, you know, rights for everyone. And so people like Martin Luther King get branded as communists. And that's something that you should fight against. And that's one of the big parts of the book that I talk about is that how do you use these sort of moral fights as a way to undercut the kinds of social changes that actually do need to happen? You know, same thing when we get to the 70s and we're talking about you know, equal rights amendment and women's rights, or we're talking about gay rights. All of these things have a, you know, sort of a foundation in the ways in which people fought against this kind of these issues in the 19th century going forward. Yeah, it's also amazing to me just how, I guess that, is that the beginning and we'll talk about on the other side of the break, mm-hmm. sort of the the the, the foundation, because <laughs> yeah. I want I, I want to take a moment to step back from that. But was nineteenth century was that sort of the beginning of when religion and American politics sort of began to be interwoven? Well, this is a good question, and I'm going <laughs> to tell you the answer. My book covers 19th century, but if we wanted to go back further, I mean, religion and politics have always been mixed up in America. I mean, why do people come to America in the first place? Because they can't worship the way they want to, and they want to get away from the king. And so they come over so they could be hardcore, you know, Puritans and do the things that they want to do, right? And then you've got religion mixed up in it because, we know, as we know from the 1619 Project, that all these Christians are going berserk over right now because it's critical race theory. And like, duh, this is like history, okay? Just like it, leave the critical race theory out for a minute. That's your, that's your, you know, bugaboo thing that you throw in. This is history. And when we talk about the history of slavery in this country, that is definitely political and is definitely religious. And so you have to think about the ways in which Christianity and enslavement and all of these things come together. And so this is a moral issue for evangelicals. But guess what? Evangelicals decide that they can justify slavery because it's in the Bible. So from the very beginning, yes, 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 it's in the Bible. We got to take a a break. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I, I want you to go... 
go to the beginning, the foundation yeah. of this. Uh, <laughs> we come right back on the other side of the break with Professor Anthea Butler um, talking about her upcoming book, White Evangelical Racism. How can it be? Sunday Civics. We are talking with Professor Anthea Butler, the author of White Evangelical Racism. And just before the break, we started the conversation, Professor Butler. <laughs> Look at that. Yes, yes. Watch y'all see the cover so you know what to get. Pick it up. <laughs> Get it up, pre-order. I'm waiting for, I already got the notification that mine is coming on. Yay. It'll come on the actual release day, March 22nd. Um, so you can go right now and order it so that it will be at your place of residence, hopefully the day it drops. So you should definitely do that. But just before the break, we were talking about the foundation and, and the connection between slavery, because slavery is at the root of everything. Yes, <laughs> Unfortunately, in America, yes, it is. And I, I want you. Uh, this is actually page page fifteen of the book because I, I did a little bit of speed reading on an excerpt I found. But I wanted to bring up and have you spend a few minutes to talk a bit about this. That you say slavery is the foundation of racism and power in American evangelist of uh, evangelicalism. Responses to slavery both for and against, have fundamentally shaped the evangelical movement in a number of important ways. Yes. Well, first of all, let's talk about scripture. I mean, you know, for the people who, you were talking about de denominations earlier, so let's talk about that, because I think that's a good space to start, and that'll take us right up. So if I talk about Baptists, for instance, you know, you've got American Baptists, you've got National Baptists, you have Southern Baptists. Why do you have so many Baptists? Well, because they broke up over the issue of slavery. So you had Baptists beforehand. There were a group of Southern Baptists that didn't like, you know, people in the South that had owned slaves, believed that they saw it in the Bible. And you can think about scriptures like Onesimus and others that, you know, support, you know, having slavery. And basically they break away from their Northern brethren to make new denominations. And it's not just the Baptists, the Methodists do it, the Presbyterians do it, the Catholic Church never split up over it. Although we all know, especially from the Georgetown Slavery Project, that Catholics own slaves too. So this is a, this is a big church thing. But part of this is about how people justified slavery. So there's several ways in which to do that. I'm just gonna go over them very quickly. One is the curse of Ham. Uh, for those of you who know scripture, you know, uh, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Noah's drunk one night. Shem and um, Japheth walk out of the tent and don't look at their father's nakedness. Ham looks at their father's nakedness and he curses Ham. And basically what people thought in the 19th century was that Ham were the black peoples and that they had been cursed into slavery. So that was one. You have other people who thought that there were, uh, because there were two uh, Genesis stories, that there was something called polygenesis and that black people were a, a creation of the first Genesis story and that they were basically a mistake. And so they weren't really human, but they were animals 
Okay. And uh, I talk a lot about this in my classes and people get freaked out when I show them the pictures of some of the books about this. And so basically uh, black people could be enslaved, right? And then there are other people who thought that slavery was very good for black people because they weren't able mentally or, you know, to be able to take care of themselves. And I tell a very interesting story at the beginning of the book that has a contemporary slant to it about how this really still exists in people's minds today. So when you have these kinds of stories that, you know, you think about the ways in which scripture has been used, evangelicals lean on scripture very heavily. And so these kinds of erroneous things form the foundation of all of this. And where you still have people today who say, you can't have interracial marriage because that's not being equally yoked. Black people aren't equal to white people. Or you have these kinds of pejorative statements that are made about black people being apes and other kinds of stuff like that. I mean, the kinds of things that were said about Michelle Obama and all of this. So you have to understand when you hear evangelicals talking about this kind of language, I'm not saying all evangelicals, but when you hear this, these are things that they're learning in the church. And that's a problem. From the pulpit. People are learning this from the pulpit. And I, mm, yeah. <laughs> are they learning it in Bible school too? I mean, I just somebody just tweeted at me the other day. They said, Oh, we were told in, in, in the 90s that the curse of ham was really true. And they were in they were in, I believe, Bible school or seminary. So I'm like, yeah. Mm -hmm. From the pulpit. Wow. From the pulpit. Um, well, you know, which is not surprising, you know, again, I grew up in church and like, there are a number of things that I've heard from the pulpit that was just like, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> like, that ain't right. Like, that ain't, that don't, the Jesus in me don't, don't see, like, don't see eye to eye <laughs> like yeah. with what you just said versus what I know you also mm -hmm. do. So, so like that, to, to line that up. So th that foundation is important. And you talk about that in the early part of the book, because you know, again, I'm not giving the detail of the details of everything in the book away, but it's also not a secret, right? It's not like it's not, not as if not you know you discovered, you know, some you know some angel came to yeah. you in the middle of like no, in the middle no, of the desert and no. gave you something that nobody no. knew, and, and and you know, and that's a part to me that is really looking overall at sort of history in general religious movements and things like that. These things are not hidden. No, they're not. Right. It's not something that was unknown to certain people or the connection, but it becomes something that, well, a, a couple of things. One, either people want to hide it, yeah. right? And so they want to say, well, no, we'll just let in all these people of color and so all these things mm -hmm. like that. And we'll brush past the foundation. We'll brush past our history. We're not going to talk about it at all because that was history. And now we're at this point. And so we're, we're just going to move yeah. forward. Right. Yeah. And we know that you can't move forward without addressing the issue at hand or, or addressing the harm, right? Yeah. You need to address the harm. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you just, you know, you know, just, you know, painting over, shit if you will yeah. <laughs> so so Pretty there's much. that but then there's the second thing of saying no that didn't happen well, and yeah. the people who dig down mm -hmm. and say no that didn't happen that's not what it's right and, and and despite what you see despite what you read despite the evidence that exists it didn't happen mm -hmm. and that they will be indignant about it and then put that indignation onto other people or into their schools into their Bible study or whatever and say no it didn't happen 
Yeah, exactly. And that's part of the reason for my writing the book was that, you know, I felt like everybody sort of knew these things on the side, but to see them together in a synthetic way from the 19th to 21st century, to see this, you know, arc of the racism in evangelicalism is a very different story. These, these are all historical things that have happened. This is not something that's arguable. You can go check everything. It was like, you know, I, it didn't need to be a footnoted book because in part we needed to just show people that, hey, this is, this is what this is, right? And you can go pick up another book and you can put this together for yourself or you can go look up the newspaper articles. It's all, you know, documented, cited, everything. Right. And so I think one of the important things for us to sort of, you know, get get our heads around is that history can be manipulated. And may, some people may say it's about me, but I'm going to also say, you know, there's two there's there's evangelical histories that have been written that don't have black people in them at all. I mean, mm. don't, don't even care about black folks that they existed or that they had, you know, evangelical kind of beliefs, right? And there's a whole slew of books right now that are coming out or already out that are changing the story. But I mean, the, the historians of evangelicalism have written a particular kind of story. And I talk about that in the introduction to say, you know, you can write about a story about evangelicalism that's about, you know, abolitionism and missionary work and, and doing great things around the world and bringing people medicine and stuff. Nobody has said that's a lie, but you haven't written this other history which is talking about the racist stuff that you did and the people who were involved in the Ku Klux Klan or that, you know, Billy Graham really didn't like the civil rights movement and had some hard things to say about King. And you didn't want to say the stuff about Ronald Reagan opening up his thing in uh, you know, Philadelphia, Mississippi, where Schwerner Goodman and Cheney were killed. You don't want to say that and you revere Ronald Reagan. Well, this now it's time for us to look at this history in a whole kind of way. And, and, and even if we want to be contemporary about it, we could talk about, you know, George W. Bush, who basically was, you know, the evangelical president in a way, you know, more so than most any other presidents, but yet and still bombed a whole bunch of people in Iraq and said all kinds of stuff and basically vilified his, you know, uh, presidential candidate by spreading the rumor that he had a black child out of wedlock, which wasn't true. Mm. Right. Mm. Well, <clears throat> I want to fast forward to another point. I want to talk about evangelical evangelicalism as a political movement yeah. in, in the modern sense, because you say in the book, evangelicals today are not only a religious group, but they are a powerful voting block of Republicans and a strong lobby on Capitol Hill. They have their own colleges, universities, and secondary education facilities. They are embedded in local and state governments all across the United States. When did white evangelicals and republicanism become synonymous? Well, I would say that would be, you know, mid 60s forward. I mean, one of the people you could think about for this who kind of puts up the change in a way is I, I think about two people. One is, is Jerry Falwell, which is very interesting. I would say these are the front facing figures. And if we go to the 64 convention and we think about Barry Goldwater and the kinds of things that he says at that convention, that's a moment, you know, I would say that's a political moment, but it's not an evangelical moment. What ends up happening is that it sets the stage for the 1970s. And one of the things I talk about, I won't give the whole story away, is Bob Jones University and the tax status because people don't want to um, integrate the school. So that's one thing. The other thing I think is really important for people to realize is that this story is not about abortion. 
okay, is really about race. And I think this is the thing that's been missed. And, you know, other people like Randy Balmer and others have really pointed this out. And I think rightfully so, that we think about evangelical involvement with the Republicans as a, is this fusion between wanting, you know, anti-abortion, uh, anti pro-life kind of movement and everything, when the reality was this is a strategic alliance that gets built up during the 1970s that has components of you know, cultural aspects, political aspects, political organizing. If we think about Paul Ryrick, he's a big person in all of this. And then to get to, you know, the presidential campaign between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy, and Jimmy Carter, all of that comes together in this big kind of fusion of garnering this power. And so while, you know, evangelicals and others may think about Ronald Reagan as a hero, Ronald Reagan uses them. And he uses them in a, in a really good way. But the other part of it is that they also use Ronald Reagan and they use Ronald Reagan to organize. One of the things I couldn't talk about in the book, but I think it's really important for people to realize is that, you know, places like Focus on the Family or Family Research Council or American Family Association, all of these groups are powerful lobbies. They raise money. I mean, millions and millions of dollars. And lots of politicians, Republican politicians especially, are beholden to them. And they make sure that their concerns are taken care of up on Capitol Hill. So I think that it's really important for folks to kind of get a picture that this is not just about religion. This is about politics. And it's about a way in which politics gets used by people who are very savvy and have lots of money in order to influence, you know, things that they want through moral issues. I think that's a, you know, an important part in, 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 in a, in a, separate conversations and talking about, you know, the ever-present conversation of how Black people going to get ahead. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we always point yep. to institutions outside of our community. Like, mm -hmm. we need to be like the Jewish people and we need to be like, you know, this over here. And in one instance, in the snippet I read, it talks about that they have their own universities, they have yeah. their own think tanks, they have mm -hmm. their own lobbyists, sort of all of that piece. They really have their own ecosystem of power. Right. Exactly. That is also tied to civic engagement, even mm -hmm. though it's a religious, you yeah. know, like foundation. Yeah. Um, and so whether particularly you're talking about not only have their own schools, so they're able to teach their own history, able to engage young people and basically have an ever revolving uh, generation mm -hmm. of folks who are participating. They have their own people, be it yep. in their churches, right? So they mm -hmm. have a power base, mm -hmm. whether that's an economic power base and a political power base. And I'm thinking of everything because because I'm a crafter. Yeah, there are a number of like YouTube uh, communities and like Facebook communities I'm part of that are for like crafting. You mm -hmm. know, just you know, making things Maybe around the house or yeah. whatever that are that are connected to. Right. This evangelical and like and I pe uh, like I see it. I'm just like, why are you promoting your why is your conference? It all in, feeds each other. Right? It all feeds into that same like ecosystem of power. And so yes. the fact that I can be in a crafting group that is about something, you know, basic as like making back to school things. But then they're also taught, they're also saying, make sure that you're registered from an election standpoint. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> right? Like there is this. I want to bust it down for you so bad. Let me just bust it down. This is going to make people mad. Okay. But I'm going to tell it. Here's what happened. 
right at the beginning of the 1970s when black people were starting to get power, you know, remember we, uh, you elected a bunch of black mayors, you got, you know, people like Shirley Chisholm and others, we started getting black people in power. What were white people doing, okay? They were taking on the local level stuff. They were getting on the school board. They were taking, you know, let me get into the, uh, the state legislature and all this. And meanwhile, all of them went to church and they all got together at church and started all these organizations that start in the 70s, like Focus on the Family and all this stuff. They created their uh, ecosystem. What happened with black organizations is that black organizations begin to atrophy. When we're talking about, you know, and this is going to hurt folks, but the NAACP, the links and all stuff, we used to work together as units. And you can see this in my first book where I talk about the Church of God in Christ, how the women's department was working with the National Council of Negro Women. They were doing all this other stuff. There were things that were linked together. Right. But the links began to fall apart for black organizations in the late 70s and early 80s and, and how they got together. For white religious organizations and white schools and all these people who were controlling the school boards and everything else, all of that stuff became, came together like Voltron, all right? And they locked together and they did this stuff and they wasn't lockstep. So that's why you're sitting up here trying to craft something and everybody can talk about voting. So I'll give you an example. I was going to church in the early 90s before when I was in seminary and the church I went to, they were passing out stuff from a Christian coalition to say, here's your slate of voters. These are the people you need to vote for. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But they gave you something and you were just able to do it, all right? And you could just go ahead and, and take that thing into the voting booth with you and vote for your people. So I think it's really important to understand that on one side, we were doing all this stuff. And while, you know, black folks were, you know, heralding the, um, the rise of the uh, prosperity gospel and all these other full gospel churches and everything, what were, what were white evangelicals doing? Becoming more politically involved. Now, it's not to say that black churches have not been politically involved. It's just that the ways in which we had to do it because the structure was set against us happened a very different way. So you can still have souls to the polls, but guess what? Who's fighting souls to the polls in Georgia? They're, the people who are fighting souls to the polls in Georgia are white evangelicals. So you see, it's like a church fight. And, and basically the evangelicals have been able to beat back, you know, the kinds of the gains that other people want and because they have had these structures that have been together and share like-minded kinds of things or what we would call, the sociologists call frame bridging. They're able to bring all of their stuff together as one. And I think that that's what happened in the seventies. And that, you know, that needs a bigger book to be written about by somebody, but I think, it's really important to understand the ways in which the religious right comes about and comes to power is, you know, it has a big, has a huge foundation that a foundation that was ripped away from African-Americans and other groups who were trying to come together to do things. Mm. <clears throat> well, you know, we didn't get to talk about Billy Graham in detail and, you know, that's mm -hmm. a whole nother, that's a whole nother book, <laughs> like yeah. a whole nother entity. But you discuss in the book how people like Billy Graham use Black people in promoting a, quote, colorblind uh, mm -hmm. gospel when the color is really white. Yeah. <laughs> so explain, uh, explain that a little bit. Well, you know, I, I'm going to explain it with Billy Graham, but I also want to use Donald Trump. So let me go to Billy Graham first. You know, Billy Graham had lots of different people who would come up on his um, evan evan evangelicalistic crusades thing. So at the Waters is one of them. He um, had um, Andre Crouch 
come and sing a lot of the times. And so this was a way for him, Rosie Greer, it was a way for him to show, look, I have black people as part of my evangelistic crusades. They're Christians, they're great. But it also shows that, look, we're integrated. This is getting better now. But the reality is, it's not getting better, right? It's just a way to say, we have this colorblind thing where I can accept everybody. But the reality is you accept these black people because they are promoting and promulgating white ways of, of being and culturally. So in other words, we're not gonna sing, you know, like a gospel song where you'd be clapping on the two and four and stuff and stomping your feet and everything. You can sing a praise and worship song that sounds really nice. I'm gonna hurt some of y'all listening to the show, but that's what Maranatha music did to you. Okay, it became colorblind. So instead of your church singing black gospel songs, you started singing these praise and worship songs that were really nice. And they were they were soothing. Or, you know, let me use the contemporary version, Hill Song. All right. Ooh. Hill Song. I'm gonna hurt y'all today. But Hill Song is also this kind of colorblind thing. Let's get everybody singing the same thing. Let's do it in this way so that we're promoting our cultural activities. And then the kinds of cultural activities you have, whether you're Korean or you know uh, Native American or you know uh, Latinx or whoever you are, we'll do those on special days. But for the most part, we're gonna sing this Hillsong music or we're gonna sing Maranatha music or we're gonna sing regular hymns, mm. okay? And then the black people will just be yeah. up there for you know, decoration. For decoration, Jesus Lord, you take like you coming for people. I am. I'm coming for everybody. <laughs> I'm not playing. I'm not playing. It's go. It's gonna hurt, folks. But I think you know the truth hurts. And what are we gonna do about it? I mean, you know, like listen. I mean, one of the parts of the book that you know I freely admit to is I was a part of this. Is how I went to seminary. It's how I did my PhD. You know, and it was getting hurt that made me realize that I'm like I'm around people who are racist. And, and they mm. think they're being good to me, but they're being racist. And, and it's time to show this. Well, that's important because, there, you know, even though, you know, the title is talking about white evangelicalism, mm -hmm. there are Black folks who identify yep. as evangelicals mm -hmm. um, that grew up in this tradition that listening to this will say, yup. They they racist, <laughs> right? Yep, yep, Others yep. will be like, not my white people. Not my right? white people. <laughs> like, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah. Why is this book important for Black evangelicals? Or huge, black yeah, I mean, you know, the part I didn't really get to do a lot of, which I regret, uh, is the part about Black evangelicals and the rise of Black evangelicalism in the 1960s. And one of my mentors, you know, Bill Pinnell, who was very important in this movement and very important in confronting white people about their racism in within the movement and you know lived in you know and taught in a place where you had to deal with white evangelicals all the time at Fuller Seminary and i think you know it's important for black evangelicals to really see this because you need to see the ways you've been co-opted you need you know or to use that phrase you, you know you've been had you've been hoodwinked you've been bamboozled right but you know and i know that's hard for people to hear because they're going to say but this is where i found jesus but i'm like at what cost did you find jesus you know and i think that's a that's a really hard question to ask and to actually you know go deeper into the ways in which you may have been used by your congregation or your pastor or the people that you care about and what you've been taught and how, as one of my reviewers said, and I think she was really astute about this, the ways in which white evangelicalism has co-opted us all 
into certain kinds of behaviors and thinking. So it's not just black people in evangelicalism, it's all of us. It has us doing some crazy stuff that we don't need to do. And I think black evangelicals, especially I wanna have read this book because I want them to understand that while it's okay for you to be in a, in a multicultural mixed race church, however you wanna call it, you have to understand that there are people there who do not, who want you to be more like them instead of being authentically who you are. And they want you to accept the kinds of teachings that they promulgate because they think that, you know, underneath it all, that they have provided you the gospel because you were, you were not able to get it on your own, that white people had to bring it to you. And so I think for, you know, for black people or any person of color, who is involved in a multiracial church and finds themselves confused or hurt or have experienced some kind of incident that was racialized in content and nature, I think this book will help them understand the, the history of why that happened to them. Well, thank you, Professor Butler. I am looking forward to deep diving a little bit more into this. You know, I just had a conversation with my cousin who, after my uncle passed away, who was our bishop and our father during this past year, about how I am personally having a personal revolution on my faith, not doubting, but more of yeah. the structures of which I came to, you know, into faith, right? And sort of questioning and determining the structures in terms of I came into faith, but then also deep diving more into my faith. So that's separate from those yeah. structures. And as you mentioned, right, you know, yes, it's important to read this book to understand the source, to understand how you're manipulated, to understand, right? Because these are still institutions that are man-made and man-led, Right. And mm -hmm. so your faith supposedly, hopefully, is not man led, <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. and so understanding or, or understanding the foundation, understanding how racism, slavery, misogyny, sort of all of those things play into that structure doesn't mean necessarily have to mean a loss of faith. But it's just really important to understand the structure within which you are operating. Similar yeah. to your country, right? Exactly. You can be exactly. <laughs> like, and, you know, yeah. understanding and, the history and connection of racism, misogyny, capitalism, sort of all of that in your country does not also take away from you being an American. Exactly, exactly. And understanding, I you said one word that is key here, man, man-led. Lots of this is very much patriarchy. And that's part of what the, under, the undercurrent of this book is, is about you know, a patriarch, a white male patriarchal structure that has, you know, captured everybody and made Jesus white and is trying to make everybody else like a white Republican. Mm. Well, woof, Professor Butler, thank you so much. We look forward um, to reading it in um, uh, deep thought. And I know you're on tour virtually uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> for, the, for the book as well. And so I look forward to the conversations. The other piece I appreciate just being able to read, you know, the table of contents that you have a book list, a resource I list. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, you know, who wants to look at the footnotes? I mean, you want to just know what more can I read? And so that's what I'm doing, but I, I'll show you the cover one more time because I'm Vanna Black. I'm trying to sell a book. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Thanks so I much, Joy. I really thank appreciate talking so to you. so much, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. Thanks for listening. Yeah,